It may be summer, but there's no vacation from Iowa politics this year. We gather a group of political reporters to discuss all the latest news and developments on this edition of Iowa Press. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com. For decades, Iowa Press has brought you political leaders and newsmakers from across Iowa and beyond. Celebrating 50 years of broadcast excellence on statewide Iowa PBS, this is the Friday, July 8th edition of Iowa Press. Here is Kay Henderson. Iowa had a big primary election at the beginning of June. Then, toward the middle of June, the Iowa Supreme Court issued a big ruling on abortion policy, followed the next Friday by a huge ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade. And then the Iowa Democrats went to Washington, D.C. and made this big argument that the Iowa Democratic Party's caucuses should remain first in 2024. Well, today we've assembled a group of Iowa political reporters for a briefing on all of these important topics and a few others. Joining us today, Brianne Fonnen-Steel of the Des Moines Register, Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio, Stephen Gruber-Miller of the Des Moines Register, and Aaron Murphy of the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. Let's begin with abortion rulings. Um, in addition to what happened at the state and federal level in June, there was an important development in Iowa this week. Stephen, explain. That's right. So Governor Kim Reynolds had asked the Iowa Supreme Court to rehear the case it had just decided in June. Uh, the court this week said that it would not do so. And that case involved a 24-hour waiting period to receive an abortion. So what that means is it will send that case back to the district court where they will argue further about whether the 24-hour waiting period can uh, be held constitutional. And so this sets up sort of a longer battle in the courts that will kind of drag out over several months, most likely. And the issue at stake here is what standard, what legal standard do abortion restrictions need to be decided by in Iowa? The governor is arguing for a rational basis test, which is the least restrictive. So she wants to, to take a case back to the Iowa Supreme Court to get them to sort of loosen the rules for abortion restrictions before she goes to the legislature. So she has a little bit of cover in terms of not needing to do anything in the legislature right now because she can say she's pursuing this avenue in the courts. Aaron, people were thinking there might be a special session this summer in regards to um, abortion policy. Yeah, and, and Stephen alluded to it there at the end. This, this sort of punts that conversation for now, and, and there's some political benefit to that for Republicans. <clears throat> Pardon me, they don't have to come back and take what could be some controversial or big 
votes right before an election this fall. And there's some, you know, actual legal reasoning to this, too, where Republicans will tell you where there's no point in bringing us all back, crafting some kind of bill without knowing how that bill is going to be interpreted and received by the courts. So so let's find out first the standards that the courts are going to put in place and then we can draft legislation that we has, feel has the best chance of surviving. So there's some real world and some political benefits uh, to Republicans for it all working out this way. Right. It's very clear that Republicans would like to restrict abortion in Iowa, but they need to know how far the courts will let them go first. Yeah. Brianne, how does this shake out in terms of the voter dynamic here? Does it motivate certain voters? I think it absolutely motivates certain voters, and the question is which voters and how many of them. Both parties are expecting this to really kind of boost enthusiasm on their sides. Republicans, for example, have been explicit over over many years to say, we need you to turn out, we need you to elect Republicans so that we can appoint, uh, so that we can elect a Republican president who can nominate conservative justices who will tackle this specific issue. So for Republicans, this is an issue that they've cared about for a long time. They've worked toward for a very long time. And so now they're seeing the fruits of, of those labors. On the Democratic side, it's it's the opposite, right? This is has been um, cataclysmic as far as they're concerned. And so is it going to motivate Democrats to show up and push back a little bit. On the flip side, I think there's some concern among those on, um, you know, maybe newer voters, folks who are farther left, who look at Democrats and say, we did vote for you. We put you in office for 50 years, and you haven't done anything to codify these abortion rights into federal law. So why should we turn up for you again? So there's a little bit of push and pull there that I think is going to be really interesting in November. Aaron, real quickly, we don't have graphs and charts to show our viewers, and we're going to talk briefly about numbers. But what do voter registration numbers in Iowa tell us? There was a primary, obviously, in June. Yeah, and coming out of that primary, it was all good news for Republicans. They had a big boost in registered voters. Um, their registered voter numbers across the state are up 20,000 over the previous year, while Democrats are down 15,000. And so... Um, the voter registration advantage for Iowa Republicans now across the state is is more than 84,000 voters. Now, a lot of that's in the 4th District where, you know, it's a huge advantage. It's not so much in the other areas of the state. But it, it, it shows something of a trend that we've been talking about in Iowa before that the needle just seems to be creeping ever more in a, in a Republican in a, in a red direction. And these latest numbers are another example of that. Now, there's time for course corrections from the Democrats. Maybe they make up some of those gains in the coming months before November. But as of right now, those most recent numbers were very good for Republicans. Clay, Brianne was addressing how abortion, that issue, may impact voter turnout. Um, we saw voter turnout in some primary elections in June on the Republican side impacted by the school choice issue. Um, we've had horrific shootings, mass shootings. People are debating about the gun issue. And then in pockets of the state, they're debating about these carbon capture pipelines. How do you think these ancillary issues, which may be terribly local, may play in the general? There's a lot of talk that gets made by the Republicans when they're out on the campaign trail, when they're using social media to highlight inflation. Uh, they like to talk about gas prices, too, which is a conversation of itself to talk about what impacts gas prices. But they're very focused on a national conversation. Uh, many times there are a lot of other issues that get brought up, and there's always a pivot from the Republican Party 
uh, candidates to talk about national issues and tying that to President Joe Biden. That being said, you know, we see national polls that show that the you know, majority of Americans supported uh, Roe v. Wade. Uh, it will be interesting to see if that kind of changes the, the voter dynamic, because right now, you know, when a sitting president is in one party, the other party does well in a midterm election. That's what many people are expecting. But when you've had such high-profile shootings that have happened, uh, when you've had Roe v. Wade uh, undone, and this is a conversation that people are having uh, in their circles, there's going to be a, a lot of national politics that I think bleed a little bit into the races here. And then on top of that, yeah, there are conversations about uh, school choice and uh, vouchers for uh, different schools to go to private money to go to private schools. And then the CO2 capture pipelines, there are landowners who don't like this because it would be in their backyard. There are environmentalists, and you're seeing coalitions happen there. So we don't have a lot of good polling right now to show what kind of issues are going to be what really helps. But back to Aaron's point, I mean, like the Republicans I definitely may, have the advantage. I may have some, some polling. So, <laughs> and, and this ties to exactly what you were just talking about, Clay, and a little bit to what Brianne was talking about before. So NBC, now this is a national poll, and, and again, to Clay's point about nation, nationalizing these races, what is the most important issue to you, number one and two, exactly what you said, inflation and gas prices. Right now, abortion was number five on the list at 5%, and guns was even lower at three. And this is this week, so this is after the yeah. recent mass shootings. This is after Roe versus Wade. So at the end of the day, we, we often talk about this, and then we inevitably come back to it. It still, at the end of the day, comes back to checkbook economy issues. Now, will that change? Who knows? But as we sit right now. Well, and I remember, re rewind to 2020, there was a lot of talk about, uh, you know, before we knew that Donald Trump was going to win Iowa, before we knew that Senator Joni Ernst was going to be reelected, there was a lot of talk about, you know, how the pandemic is handled at the local level will affect how people vote in November. And I think it was kind of the inverse of what many people thought the pandemic response from different uh, elected officials was what actually had the impact on who turned out. So, mm -hmm. yeah, checkbook. What about the votes that Iowa's congressional delegation in the House and Senator Grassley and Ernst took on the gun bill that cleared the Senate? Will that be a debate point in the fall? I think it will absolutely be a debate point in the fall. This is an issue that voters care a lot about on, on both sides, again, for different reasons. And so kind of, you know, feeling out how the candidates stand on those issues, issues will be important. You know, if we think back to the infrastructure law, for example, the big infrastructure law that Senator Chuck Grassley voted for, he was one of only a handful of Republicans who did that. And in the weeks following, I went out to several of his events in some conservative areas of the state, and, and voters there were very frustrated with him. They thought he, he went too far. Well, you and I covered an event, Ashley Hinson's kickoff of her re-election campaign, and he got a few boos from the crowd there. Exactly, and it's really hanging on. You know, the the... The more recent polling that we've done at the Des Moines Register shows that Chuck Grassley polls behind several other other top Republicans in the state as far as his favorability. So I think a lot of these votes will come back um, to affect the, the races in one way or another. So he did vote for the infrastructure law. Fast forward a year to this gun vote that we were just talking about, and he was not one of the 15 or so Republicans in the Senate who voted for this bipartisan gun package. Joni Ernst was. And I think that kind of shows perhaps a reaction to some of the the uh, feedback he got on that last bipartisan vote, but also just kind of the extent to which 
these races are pretty polarized now. And so um, you need to be focusing on your own people turning out a little bit more than showing your bipartisan credentials. And, and he's clearly aware of that backlash, that feedback, because when this week the federal government announced some funding for Iowa airports out of that infrastructure bill, Chuck Grassley put out a statement saying, hey, this is why I voted for that. Um, Clay, we're talking about the Senate race. Let's talk about the challenger that's set up against um, Senator Grassley, Mike Franken. Yeah, you had him on the show here not too long ago. Mike Franken, retired Navy admiral, uh, surprised a lot of people maybe watching nationally defeated Abby Finkenauer, the one-term former congresswoman from Iowa. Uh, and, you know, seeing the two of them on the campaign trail, Mike Franken uh, was very you know, out there, I was actually having, feeling like this feels kind of like one of these Chuck Grassley town hall meetings because he was taking a lot of questions. He was uh, talking a lot about foreign policy. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how he performs. I think a lot of the people that I was talking to during these campaign events were interested in Mike Franken because they thought that he was somebody that could beat uh, Chuck Grassley. Of course, that's what all Democrats would like in the state, I'm sure. Uh, but it will be interesting to see how the two of them uh, square off if they debate, which, I mean, I, we'll get a chance to see that as we get closer into the fall. How does Mike Franken make the case to the big donors that, hey, invest in my race against Chuck Grassley, who's sometimes considered the most popular Republican in Iowa, when you have competitive races in big states like Pennsylvania, <coughs> And, you know, maybe Wisconsin, which is a neighboring state. I mean, how does he make that case? He prays for good news from Ann Selzer and our colleagues uh, here <laughs> from, from the register and gets a good poll. Um, the campaign did publish a poll this week, an internal poll, so uh, take that caveat for what it's worth, that showed him within five percentage points of Chuck Grassley. Um, if that's a one-off, so for now, if more and more show that, then attention may come in his race. But I th and, and I believe... Admiral Franken has said as much. Like we need some polls to show that he we said can it on this him. program. Yeah, actually. thank you. I thought so. <laughs> um, that he that we need that to to show, you know, the national folks and and the folks with the money that it's it's worth paying some attention to Iowa. But even so, with you know, if you look back to this this last election with Joni Ernst, it looked like Teresa Greenfield, mm -hmm. the Democrat in that race, was within striking distance in some of these polls. The national money came in in droves, and and Joni Ernst still won by I believe eight percentage points in that race. And so I think history in Iowa paired with, as Clay mentioned, you know, probably a bad year for Democrats nationally, it's going to be really tough for him to make that case. So I was struck by listening to Cindy Axney's speech at the Democratic State Convention in June. Hey, I'm the number one target uh, for Republicans. Brian, how is that congressional race in the new third district shaping up? Well, it's shaping up to be incredibly competitive. Cindy Oxney is one of only a handful of Democrats who won in districts that Donald Trump also carried. So for that reason alone, she's she's seen as incredibly vulnerable. Um, and she is now facing, we know from the primary state, Senator Zach Nunn won his primary race. He's a military veteran. He served in the state legislature. And so he's um, the kind of person who I think people believe could could make, um, make this a competitive race, make it a real matchup. But I think Cindy Axney is also seen as being really in touch with her district, as having done a lot of work here to hold that down. 
But again, we're coming back to a midterm election year where the, the tides are not, they're going against the Democrats broadly. So national forecasters have said this race leans Republican. They switched that after Zach Nunn won his primary. So we do expect this to be very competitive. We expect a lot of money to come into this race because it is really one that could decide the fate of, of the House of Representatives. Aaron, down in the first district, and now the new first, the district. New first district, and it's, it's southeast Iowa quadrant and kind of tumbles over and catches a little bit of the south suburbs of, of Des Moines. Marionette Miller-Meeks is seeking re-election and facing Christina Bohannon, a Democrat from Iowa City, which would be the Democratic power base in that district. Yeah, it's, it's similar to the third district where you have Des Moines and then everything else. That, that, that's the case for that district. Um, that'll be an interesting one. It seems to be that it should be competitive, too. I mean, remember, and now these are new districts because of redistricting, but when Marionette Miller-Meeks won two years ago, she won by six votes, uh, so obviously a super close race. And there are some Democrats who would say, parentheses, maybe she won because there were ballots that weren't counted that they shot, thought should have been. Um, so it's, it's a competitive area, generally speaking. Um, and then and Christina Bohannon, the Democrat, is, is well-known and popular in the district and is a good public speaker when we've had a chance to see her at a, events, is, is a good campaigner. So, th so we expect that one to be competitive. But again, and we're really banging this drum here, but it, but it, it does go back again to the national mood and, and the way that voters feel about Democrats right now in general, and, and that could hurt Christina Wohan in that race as well. Clay, then in the new second, you've got uh, two people who know one another well who are running against one another. That's right. So this is the district that includes Cedar Rapids and Northeast Iowa, and it's a uh, first term. She's in her first term, Ashley Henson, the congresswoman there. And then she's running against State Senator Liz Mathis of Hiawatha. And both of these, I mean, it's been said on this show in the past, they're well known because they were on television. They were journalists in that district. Uh, and Liz Mathis, when I came to Iowa 10 years ago, was fairly new in the state Senate. Democrats had control of the state Senate. Uh, was kind of an up-and-comer. And as long as I've been in this state, people I've been hearing would, uh, from Democratic circles would like her to run for federal office. Well, now she's running. Uh, I've seen her out on the campaign trail and uh, small community gatherings. She connects with voters as she's out there, and so does Ashley Henson. So, I mean, they both have name ID in their district and are well-known. And, uh, you know, how rare is it that a state has three competitive congressional races going into a midterm election? So it'll be interesting watching all three of those of the four congressional races here. We're, of course, watching a gubernatorial race, um, and neither Kim Reynolds nor Deidre DeGere had primary opposition, but the race is maybe starting in earnest, Stephen? Yeah, I think if you're looking at that race, you would rather be in Kim Reynolds' position right now. First of all, you're an incumbent. <laughs> Second of all, uh, Reynolds has vastly outraised DeGere throughout this campaign. We were talking a little bit about the challenge of raising national money for Democrats, you have to prove that I was competitive. And so uh, I think that has been a struggle for DeGere and is going to continue to be a struggle to be able to compete financially. Um, if national donors see Iowa as a red state, they don't want to pour money into a governor's race that, that they think is going to lose. So um, Reynolds is kind of running this race on her own time, and she's had sort of the <laughs> the time to focus on other issues like we talked about her education proposal previously uh, she went around campaigning for republicans who supported giving that taxpayer scholarship to private to pay for private school so she's kind of working on those issues that she wants to focus on 
next year in the legislature and uh, and hasn't really focused much on Digier. When she's campaigning, she talks a lot about uh, the national economy, which we've been talking about, right? So sort of running against Joe Biden almost, who's unpopular in Iowa, talking about inflation, talking about gas prices, talking about um, how those things are hurting Iowans. Well, in 2018, Democrats made that election a, sort of a pseudo-referendum on Donald Trump. Brian, doesn't it make sense to make this election a, a pseudo-referendum on Joe Biden? Well, that's certainly what Governor Reynolds is trying to do. You ask her a question about just about anything, and she'll, she'll very quickly pivot to gas prices, to inflation, to uh, issues at the border, all kinds of things. She's trying to make this race very national. And this year, to, you know, when she was on, on this program a couple of weeks ago, she turned that back around on Kim Reynolds and said, you know, she's happy to talk about national issues, but there are problems here at home that she should be focusing on. So I think that's going to be a tension that we'll see between these two candidates about where they're trying to draw voters' attention and what they get from that. And how voters respond to that. Exactly. Uh, because, again, you know, that NBC poll has all the issues that Kim Reynolds and Republicans have been talking about. Can I can Iowa Democrats motivate voters to vote based on school choice or transgender students? I mean, that's that's their challenge if they see that as the path forward for them. So we have less than five minutes left for this conversation, and we can't go without talking about the Iowa caucuses. Democrats went to D.C., as did Brianne and Clay. You were in the room where it happened, so to speak. Um, Clay, they made the case that the Iowa caucuses should remain first to the Rules and Bylaws Committee of the Democratic National Committee. Yeah, and it, these are important national Democrats, and they gather in a room, and one after another, they hear from these states. I think it was like 17 states uh, in Puerto Rico, 16 in Puerto Rico. They make their case. Uh, the Democratic National Committee Rules and Bylaws Committee wanted states to make the case based on, is your state competitive in a general election? Is your state uh, diverse, the population? And also, uh, they wanted it to be focused on primaries instead of caucuses. So, you know, Democrats had a case to make because a lot of those things have not been going in their favor when you think about what happened in 2020 uh, with the delay in the smartphone app for the results. So Iowa got up, they made their case. There were three people from the state that went. There was the Iowa Democratic Party Chair Ross Wilburn. Uh, there was also Jennifer Confers, the House Minority Leader, and then Scott Brennan, a former Iowa Democratic Party Chair who also serves on that Rules and Bylaws Committee. So they got up, they made their case, as did all these other states, and no decision was made. Uh, but it looks like, I mean, like, there's an appetite to change up the calendar. And that's what you got from the line of questioning, uh, although no cards were really shown on the table, as nobody expected to. So um, I think the smoke um, will be sent on this in early August. They'll know for sure what the calendar may be. But, Brianne, what was your read of what was going on there? Well, it's not great for Iowa Democrats, uh, if, if we're being blunt about it. Um, you know, the, the questions in the room were really focused on a lot of things that Iowa Democrats can't change, right? We can't change the demographics of the state. We can't become a primary and not a caucus. The Democrats really kind of Hail Mary play was to say, we're going to scrap the, the realignment process, some of the more arcane rules that, that go around the caucuses to make it look more like a primary. Um, and the committee showed some um, appreciation for that, but they, they really were kind of picking at some other Midwestern states who have thrown their hat in the ring to say maybe Michigan can be the Midwestern state that replaces Iowa. Maybe it's Minnesota. 
The question will be whether those states can get their Republican parties on board with moving their primary dates. And if that happens, I think Iowa's in a real, a really threatened position. And so we should note that we're, we're taping this on Friday afternoon. There will be a meeting of the Rules and Bylaws Committee Friday evening where we might see some of those cards come onto the table for the first time before they make their final vote in August. One thing that um, a source said was that by announcing, hey, we're going to let early voting, maybe two to three weeks ahead, then Iowa could say, hey, we're really starting to vote first, but they might be number five in the lineup. Is that something that either of you see as more likely? I think that's possible. I think it's possible that Iowa um, gets moved back in the lineup. They go fourth or fifth instead of first. And if they do have early voting, I mean, that's an incentive for presidential candidates to continue campaigning here. But if you think back to 2020, California had early voting. They technically started voting before Iowa did in 2020. And there was a conversation about whether that would change the dynamic of where people played. And most people probably don't remember that because it didn't change the dynamics all too terribly much. And I mean, the, the things that Iowa seemed to have going in its favor the most as they were making this case are the, you know, cost of running in Iowa. Uh, there is a very low cost media market here. You can also hit a lot of the state uh, that is, you know, being urban, suburban, rural Iowa. <clears throat> and with relatively ease, the population is spread out a lot more in Iowa than in a place like Michigan or in with Detroit or with the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Um, but, you know, the Republican National Committee, they've already kind of set their calendar that still goes Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. And so we're already seeing candidates that are flirting with a run in 2024 here in the state. So the process has kind of already started for the Republicans. And if this conversation, you know, if they start kind of pulling at these threads, I mean, like, just doing things the way that it had been done is probably the easiest way not to have as much conflict right now. Well, this is a hard thing to say, but we are done with this conversation today. But many of these topics we're going to be talking about at this table again. Thanks to all of you for joining and sharing with our viewers your reporting. You can watch every episode of Iowa Press on iowapbs.org. Thanks for watching. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com.